when I would walk past the TV and the news would be on and they would do this call, you know, the trials, they need more African-Americans, more Latinx people of color to join the clinical trials. It just kind of hit me one day that, you know, hey, they're talking to you. Clinical trials are so big. But I think when I kept hearing the calls and it finally clicked, like, hey, they're speaking to you. I didn't even think twice about signing up and participating. That is Dr. Dawn Holt. She holds two PhDs, one in medical pathology and the other in clinical psychology. In her professional life, she describes herself as a bench scientist and researcher, working behind the scenes. In her personal life, she's an active member of Kingdom Fellowship AME Church in Calverton, Maryland. That's located in Prince George's County, which borders the nation's capital. Over the last year, with one foot in the world of science and the other rooted in her faith community, Holt has stepped forward to become a public health advocate, educating community members about COVID-19 prevention and increasing understanding and confidence about the vaccine trials and their effectiveness. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices, exploring the ways beliefs shape our world. This is National Public Health Week, and we're taking a closer look at people of faith working in partnership with public health advocates to increase vaccine confidence. We begin with Dr. Dawn Holt, sharing her journey from a backbench scientist to becoming a volunteer public health advocate. The end of last summer, I signed up to participate in the trial. I didn't really share with a whole lot of people at the time that I signed up because I knew that there was some apprehension about the actual vaccines and the process and what was perceived to be how quickly the vaccines were coming out. What I also understood was that a lot of people didn't understand the years <laughs> of research that have actually gone into the development of these vaccines. In these vaccines, there's only one new component, and that's the actual information that boosts the immune system against the actual COVID virus. I have a PhD in medical pathology. And so I spent over 10 years at the research bench doing uh, biomedical research. My area of expertise is tumor immunology. So I looked at ways to target and limit metastatic breast cancer. So kind of because I knew all this stuff, I kind of kept it to myself until later on having a conversation with Reverend Watley and some other members of the church. And it may have been like late September Our conversation initially began as trying to get more people to participate in the trials. We knew that at the time Moderna and Pfizer wanted to make sure that there was enough representation in the trials from women and African-Americans and Latinx. They also wanted to make sure that there was enough people who had diabetes, 
cardiovascular diseases, you know, who were in those categories because they really wanted to get a full picture of the impact of the vaccines on different demographics. I started speaking on several church panels, speaking across the country, just sharing my story. It wasn't until at that moment, it was like, oh, wow, you're, you're actually starting to make, <laughs> you know, a huge impact. I mean, I think a lot of times people think of a clinical trial is you show up one day, they give you the vaccine and they send you home. When in essence, no, 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 no. It is a full out process. The nurses, the doctors, the researchers there that are connected to the clinical trial, they are going over documentation with you. They're making sure that you actually understand what's involved in the process, what are the outcomes, what is your participation going to be like in the trial. They're asking you lots of questions about your medical history, your medical background. They care. They want to make sure that you're going to do okay during the trial. So it's not just show up once, they give you a shot and they leave you to your own. They're going to be there with you the rest of the walk to make sure that you're okay and that the outcomes of the trial are going to be beneficial. In our community, the church plays a huge role and that if people were going to be listening to their pastors and the people who attend their churches, they're going to really be looking to them for just the assurance that this is going to be something that's okay. And so when Reverend Watley and the rest of the team started to take a stand for participating in clinical trials, and then when Pfizer and Moderna were moving closer to receiving their emergency use. This is the FDA saying, we've looked at the d data from the phase three clinical trials. It's showing that the vaccine is effective and it's safe and it's okay to now be used. FDA has certain standards and is not going to give it full approved until the clinical trial is complete, but they can give an emergency use if at the completion of the phase three, which would be 60 days after the last person received second vaccine, if they can show that it's effective and safe, that they can give an emergency use. I've read Moderna and Pfizer's final report submitted to the FDA. They're very thorough and they pretty much explain and go through everything, kind of like what I went through with the clinical trial. You're being monitored and you're going back. I've probably been back at least six times since last fall. And so you get the shot, you go back two weeks later, you meet with the nurse, and then, you know, they take samples. They're looking to see if you have antibodies. They're looking at your platelets, your white blood cell counts. They're making sure that you're receiving the appropriate immune response, that you don't have any adverse effects. I have an app on my phone every week. It clicks up. It asks me a series of questions. I'm constantly being monitored. I've had to go back three more times in the next year or so. Even after getting the second shot, you still continue to go back. And they're still making sure that this, the vaccines are effective as well as safe. This past Saturday, I was speaking to a woman that attended our church. She's a nurse. 
And she was just describing to me how she said she didn't have vaccine hesitancy, but this vaccine, she was kind of on the fence about it. And, you know, it was just like as being a nurse, you know, working in an emergency room environment, she was just still kind of, she wasn't hesitant, but she wasn't going to rush out and get it. But she actually watched one of the panels that we sat on and she literally told me, she said, you explained everything that you experienced participating in the trial and everyone else on the panel was so open and forthright and provided the information that we needed to really understand this vaccine. And she said, when it became available to me, I didn't even think twice. I went ahead and got it. So I identify myself as a Christian. And so I believe that my faith has played a huge role in this whole pandemic. A lot of us have found ourselves praying a lot more, studying, you know, seeking God in these moments, especially when it comes to kind of like, okay, all right, God, what's, what's, what's purpose? You know, what's my purpose? And I've totally believed that this whole thing with me coming out and being an advocate, uh, not just for the clinical trials, but for, you know, trying to remove some of the hesitancy when it comes to vaccines has all been tied and in line with the purpose. When I signed up last summer, I had no idea <laughs> um, that I would be speaking to people all across the country, to different congregations ab about COVID and about vaccines. I'm excited about it, and my faith has just grown even stronger. You know, being a bench-based scientist, we're always wanting to work in the background. Everything that you do from a science perspective, it's, it's at the bench. You're very quiet. And so what this has actually done is it's allowed me to kind of find my voice and just be able to speak to people and impact their lives. Dr. Don Holt's voice is having an impact. She's featured in a number of outreach and public health webinars and community events to reach groups who may have reservations about the vaccine, including African-Americans and Latinos. Her ability to translate the most complex processes into lay language, it's a skill, something her pastor, Reverend Matthew Watley, recognized immediately. You know she's super smart, right? Oh, I got that. I got that. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, two PhDs, really? Is that necessary? <laughs> he leads Kingdom AME Fellowship in Silver Spring, Maryland and Calverton, Maryland. It's one of the largest and fastest-growing African-American congregations in the Maryland suburbs. Last year, as COVID spread and began to disproportionately impact African-American communities, Watley began networking and calling on fellow pastors, encouraging proactive outreach to educate and inspire confidence in the vaccine trials. What I said to my colleagues at the beginning of this was, is, listen, never waste the crisis. If you are unable to preach a compelling message during this time, I'm not certain you're called to preach because it's brought the reality of death into all of our consciousness. It's brought the commonality of humanity that at the end of the day, we're not black and white, we're people and we're people made in the image of God. And so for me, I find it to be a very encouraging time to be a person of faith and to encourage others who are struggling to find faith. As you well know, uh, there is larger hesitancy in the African-American community uh, born out of decades of medical racism, 
uh, any number of high profile instances where African-Americans uh, were harmed intentionally or by way of neglect. And so there's obvious and rightful uh, concern around any new medical intervention. What were you hearing from them that got you concerned? Several things, obviously, Tuskegee, Henry Lacks, but also Remember, we had a uh, presidential administration that was denying the existence of the, of the virus, was, you know, suggesting that people should use Clorox, was promising the vaccine, you know, by a date certain, which would suggest that the regulatory process was being undermined or compromised. So there were rational uh, concerns that people had that needed to be addressed. One of the things that, you, of course, you know, is that being in D.C., we have a front row seat to the federal government. So I have members who work at the CDC and the NIH and FDA. And so when I hear about the government, I can actually put faces to that. And so it was easier for me to sort of demythologize from my own concern and then to help others uh, to go along that same path. So it was important for us to try to use every means uh, necessary to get the word out that these vaccines were safe, that they weren't created too quickly, that the CDC had been working on this, NIH had been working on this uh, for years, that African-Americans uh, had their hand in not only creating the vaccine, like Dr. Kismikia Corbett, who led the team, uh, but also the four medical HBCUs are actually vaccination sites in terms of the trials. And I actually participated at the uh, Howard University Hospital vaccination trial for the Novavax vaccine. And I was pretty excited about the fact that I actually got the side effects after my second shot, because I didn't know if I just got the placebo. So I was the one guy praying for, for side effects. <laughs> so when the pandemic first started, I started writing to uh, churches and in, in church magazines to try to get their minds around how to respond to this pandemic. The vaccine issue was another one of the things that I knew was going to be of concern because of the conversations I was having with my parents and with my colleagues, people who I respect, people who are well-educated and still have real concern. Did you find yourself struggling to break through to make the case that this is a priority that needs to be attended to? So what became really clear in this fight, and I've experienced it time and time again, is it really is about relational equity. There's so much misinformation, and misinformation is no respect of person. So whether you have a PhD or whether you are ordained, you are just as apt to you know, fall victim to it as anyone else. And so what I discovered was it was working through relationships, long-existing relationships, uh, where we share information back and forth, we trust one another's judgment. Those were the networks that I began to press into to just provide information. I knew that these were very smart people. These are sober-minded people who really had a heart for their communities. And if they could just hear sort of outside of the echo chamber of social media and, you know, quite frankly, uh, mass media, that they would be able to uh, separate truth from fiction and start to, to shift. The research showed that as well, that trusted voices are the ones that get through the most. And so uh, I sort of put together a pastor's toolkit put together any number of forums where we had persons, again, like Dr. Kamikia Corbett, Dr. Leon McDougall, who's president of the National Medical Association, which is the largest African-American medical association, President Wayne Frederick, who's president of Howard University, one of those medical HBCUs that I referenced earlier, as well as actually some members of my church, one of which uh, works for a large pharmaceutical association. So it was important that people could see that this is not something that, quote unquote, they 
in terms of the vaccine have put together. But we as African-Americans have really had a hand in it directly. And that, I think, really made a difference in terms of people coming around. What is the response that you're seeing among your congregants? What is the response that you're hearing from pastors around the country? The truth of the matter is, the African-American church is the first and last line of defense for our community. So whenever there is a concern, we know that we're the ones that are going to have to address it. We're the only ones that own land and have boots on the ground in every community. Uh, we have longstanding relationships politically and socially. Our voices are respected, and we know our people. And so as a consequence, uh, whether it was you know the protest at, in the wake of the George Floyd mur- murder or responding to community need as it relates to food insecurity or trying to combat voter suppression, which we saw in a very strong way during the selection cycle or responding to the pandemic. In each instance, the answer has been the same again and again, the Black church. I knew that, again, it was just about getting the information out. And and we've seen uh, the same results all over the country as African-American pastors have taken the lead and informed their congregations. There's been a great shift. And now African-American pastors are opening up their churches to serve as vaccination sites because they're already serving as testing sites. One of my members said, my mother's on the list here in Maryland to be uh, vaccinated because she's in a nursing home, but I really am concerned that I think I want to wait. Instead of responding to her, I, I encouraged her to watch the forum, and I raised her question to a colleague who also happens to be uh, a Harvard-trained medical doctor, and I asked him her question, and his response was to look directly in the camera and say, I really want to encourage you to have your mother take the vaccine. She's in a vulnerable position, and this is the only protection that she has. The next day, she hit me back on Instagram and thanked us for the forum and said she had signed her mother up and felt great about the decision. She said, I heard what the pastor said, even though he's a medical doctor. She said, I heard what the pastor said. Mm. The Biden administration is making COVID its principal priority. Are you connected to those leadership efforts? I am. And very happy to see uh, their forthrightness. In fact, I just got off of a Zoom right before uh, this interview uh, with some folks uh, who are in senior leadership on his equity task force. I think it's really important as people of faith to make a distinction between partisanship and what, you know, for those who are Christians, call kingdom. And kingdom uh, understanding based on scripture means that we don't align ourselves with either party, that we, we preach the Bible, we preach the gospel. And what's amazing to me is that if you really read your Bible, you, you'll recognize, and this is just my own view, that one party is really good at, you know, speaking against individual sin, the other party is really good at speaking against institutional sin. The Bible speaks against both. (laughs) And so uh, I was hard on, I supported President Obama, but when I felt that he erred uh, outside of what was right, I sit up from the pulpit knowing full well that I had people working in his White House and working on Capitol Hill in my congregation. Likewise, when, when President Trump, and it was very often squared outside of what I thought was right, I did the same thing. I'll do the same thing with Biden. That I think is important, that if you can't make a distinction between preaching and partisanship, then the separation of church and state had on the wrong way. How do you feel about some of the mileposts that are being set up by this administration? Well, I think leadership requires a clear direction, clear goals that are achievable and measures to to know if you're successful. And so what the Biden administration is doing is textbook. 
He's making his strategy clear. He's casting a vision. And then he is putting in place uh, intermediary goals to achieve them. Uh, when you look at the, what my whole frame for this entire dark episode for our country and the world is World War II. And I took the words from Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill said, never waste a crisis. The concept theoretically is called disequilibrium theory. When things are at balance, things move slowly. Bureaucracy takes a long time. But when things are pushed in a disequilibrium, you can make rapid change very quickly. And I think in terms of what the Biden administration has been able to do in its first few months and how we're seeing the vaccine supply ramp up exponentially and infrastructure being put in place around the country uh, to get it administered and get it out. I think we have a lot of reasons to be hopeful, but ultimately uh, we as a country always come down to the individual level. When each of us put aside our, our petty differences, the rancor and the disinformation, and do what's not just best for ourselves, but also do what's best for our brothers and sisters, our fellow citizens. That was the Reverend Matthew Lawrence Watley. He's the founder and senior pastor of Kingdom Fellowship AME, headquartered in Silver Spring, Maryland. And Don Holt, a medical pathologist and public health advocate from Calverton, Maryland. Coming up, my conversation with Melissa Rogers and the role of partisanship and partnership in rebuilding the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. In early February, President Biden signed an executive order establishing the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, naming Melissa Rogers its executive director. As we explore this relationship between faith communities and public health, 
we spoke with Rogers to learn more about her role and the priorities of the office. Welcome back to Inspired, Melissa Rogers. It's great to be with you, Amber. And Melissa, this is not your first time in this role. You also served under President Obama. That's right. One thing I noticed is that your role extends to the Domestic Policy Council. Melissa, is this a new development? Well, the work that I did during the Obama-Biden administration also focused on the intersection of faith and public policy. What's new is that there is a part of my title that is given to that function. And I think that that's very helpful because it signals that President Biden, Vice President Harris, and Ambassador Susan Rice really recognize that the intersection of faith and public policy is one issue that needs to be minded. That intersection needs to be minded because it's so important that we um, attend to the religious liberty and church-state separation guarantees in our Constitution and in other supporting laws. Can you explain the role that racial equity plays in the priorities of the office? What we know is that often faith communities are very skilled at ensuring that people who are underserved or may be the subject of disparities in service, that they get served. And so we wanted to make sure to lift that up as something that we uh, noticed and could work on to improve. Because I think over the last few years, what we've seen uh, very clearly uh, and widely is that there are racial disparities in in health um, outcomes and in uh, all kinds of other areas, whether it's opportunities for education or economic advancement. And so we need to address those disparities. And that is a very unifying issue across faith traditions and people of different beliefs that people believe there ought to be equitable treatment. And we want to make sure that we do work through these partnerships to address racial disparities. Does that translate into prioritizing partnerships with certain denominations? Well, we want to work with everybody who wants to address the racial disparities, and that can include all kinds of you know, people, people who are not subject to the disparities themselves, but feel that it's wrong to have the disparities. The question of partnership, I think, is one that many are paying close attention to, especially, and as you well know from all of your work around religious freedom and religious liberty issues, there are a lot of nuances, and it can be complicated for some, and there are strong opinions about the role that government and faith communities should be playing together. So we want to be engaging people of a variety of faiths and beliefs. And so we want to throw the doors open uh, to hear from people, especially people who may have felt shut out or even worse in recent years. So we've been talking with um, all kinds of friends and colleagues, including those from you know various traditions, um, including the Muslim uh, organizations that have come and have spoken to us about their concerns, Christian organizations, Jewish organizations, Sikh leaders, uh, leaders of the evangelical organizations, leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, you know, just across the board, we have been talking to people and listening to them, even more importantly, 
to hear about their experiences, what they feel is a priority uh, going forward, both in the policy space and the partnership space, and indicating to them that we want very much to be engaged with them and that we want to try to bring different voices together to work together um, so that we can build up the kind of healthy pluralism that has characterized our country at its best. So there's certainly no room for fear-mongering on the basis of race, ethnicity, and religion, or fear-mongering of any kind. America always has to be a place where it's clear that under our Constitution, there are no second-class phase. And so we need to put those principles front and center and reach out to people of all different faiths and beliefs and find ways to work together and to affirm the best of the United States, which is, uh, includes the idea that every person is equal and that every person has great dignity and ought to be treated with respect, and that every American can make a profound contribution to our country, that, and that should always be recognized and valued. What are the top priorities right now animating your work and the direction that your office is taking in terms of bringing people together, in terms of the briefings and the weekly calls? What what are the top priorities that you're focused on? Well, I can mention uh, a couple right now. There are many, but let me just mention right now that we're working very hard on ensuring that people get the facts about COVID-19 and about vaccinations. And we're working in partnership with many different faith-based and community groups on these tasks. And what we know is, for example, just looking at the faith-based organizations, we have houses of worship that are dotted across the country. They're familiar and welcoming places to many Americans. And religious leaders are among the most trusted leaders that, that we have. We also know that faith-based and community organizations often excel at reaching hard-to-reach populations. And religious leaders across the board, we found, are fired up about helping people uh, get the facts about the virus and the vaccine, and they are working increasingly with government to do that. They are making their houses of worship available, for example, as vaccination sites. They are working the phones to set up appointments for people. They are arranging transportation to and from appointments for people who need it. They are helping to dispel fears, for example, by getting, you know, religious leaders and community leaders getting the vaccine first on social media for their congregants or their community members to see, and also making clear that uh, people ought not to be misled by baseless conspiracy theories that can sometimes be out there. So we see that across faiths and beliefs, there is a lot of enthusiasm about working with one another and also working with government to help people get vaccinated. How are you finding those networks of faith leaders who 
went ahead and started doing the work that you're describing without any coordination or, frankly, input from the federal government or state authorities. What are some of the ways that folks are listening right now who happen to be members of those communities? What are ways that that the office is helping to connect and ensure that that information is flowing in two directions? That's a great question, and certainly we want to thank all the leaders, community and faith leaders, who are playing such strong roles and have been for a long time. So one of the things that we're doing is reaching out to people uh, like the uh, Reverend you described to make sure that we are knowledgeable about their efforts to date and that we are saying to them, look, we'd love to work with you if you'd like to work with us. And many times that answer is yes. And so that's a great opportunity. We're also uh, working with state and local officials to make sure that they know that faith and community groups want to work with them. And if they're not already doing that, then we really want to encourage them to reach out to faith and community leaders. Um, They need to know that these leaders bring many strengths to the table and can be very nimble and part of their plan to get people vaccinated. And they also need to know that working with faith-based organizations, for example, is not something that's prohibited by the Constitution. It is something that is permitted by the Constitution. And this is something where they need to be, of course, always mindful about working with people of a variety of faith traditions and people of no faith tradition. They should not fear the idea of church-state separation, which we respect, uh, means in any way that they cannot work with houses of worship and others who want to collaborate on this shared goal of helping people to get vaccinated and helping people to be healthy in their communities. But I want to speak to another um, issue that has been lifted up, which is the relationship between churches, houses of worship, faith-based communities, and government. The data that I was looking at from CBS News really showed that it wasn't older uh, Republicans, but rather uh, Republicans and independents who are 45 and younger. And I'm curious, are you looking at that data, and how is that informing some of the work that you're doing? Well, thank you for um, that question. We are working with you know conservative communities that would define themselves as conservative, certainly, including uh, faith communities that would do so. And we are working with them on the efforts to make sure that the facts get out about the virus and the vaccine. And there's lots of enthusiasm that we have there, too, among our partners, among conservative partners. So, yes, we are focused on making sure that we address all the concerns that are out there and do so with uh, communities that would be very, very persuasive with the audience we're trying to reach. Could you name one or two of those partners we're talking about? Can you give an example or two of organizations, conservative or more moderate-leaning faith-based groups that, that you are working with or working in partnership with? Well, one of the things I wanted to mention was a a great article written by Russell Moore Mm -hmm. in the Washington Post Mm -hmm. uh, that hit this head on. And so that is an example of someone, you know, in an organization with whom we're in dialogue and, um, you know, seeking to find ways to work together. Are there other folks that you see that are up and coming leaders that are following the lead of Dr. Moore? 
there's certainly more organizations that would define themselves as conservative in one way or another that we're just we're having conversations with and we'll be ready to share more information about that in the coming weeks. Um, and, you know, I think that we're going to take a very strong approach of reaching out to people across the political and ideological spectrum. Melissa Rogers, executive director of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, The day after our conversation, Rogers co-hosted an event featuring Dr. Francis Collins, head of the National Institute of Health. Rogers is hoping Dr. Collins can reach a constituency that is increasingly resistant to public health messaging, white evangelical men. Coming up, religious studies professor Julie Ingersoll offers some perspectives on the beliefs shaping and informing that resistance. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This is National Public Health Week, and we're taking a closer look at people of faith working in partnership with public health advocates to increase vaccine confidence. Early in 2020, as the race to develop a vaccine was underway, there was a lot of attention on building confidence among African-Americans. As we heard earlier from our guests, that focus was rooted in the history of medical racism and the unethical practices that were often conducted on people of color. Recent surveys show that outreach and education has actually closed the hesitancy gap. Now, a new group has emerged as resistant to vaccines. In March, a poll conducted by the Associated Press noted that 40 percent of white evangelical Protestants said they likely won't get vaccinated. Now, there are about 41 million white evangelicals. So given their size, that makes the religious bloc the most resistant to vaccines. Public health advocates warn that could prolong the pandemic. Is the opposition rooted in religion or something else? To learn more, I spoke with religious studies professor Dr. Julie Ingersoll. She encourages us to look beyond orthodox beliefs and take a closer look at the culture, namely a distrust of government and science. What do you see as the biggest challenge now facing evangelical churches? The upending of knowledge and the ability to have conversations with shared information across a divide, conspiracy theories and anti-science views and all of all of that um, sort of politicization of everything in our lives is the biggest challenge, not just for evangelicals, but for Americans. I think we're at a really, really dangerous point in our history and the voices are loud. (laughs) You know, we've got this polling data that shows half of Republican men don't plan to be vaccinated. Well, there is, you know, there's a there's a pretty strong overlap between half of Republican men and evangelicalism. 
In fact, I think it was actually half of Republican men who voted for Trump. So it separated out that small percentage of Republican men who did not. So these are going to be evangelicals. You know, they have a kind of exuberance about their own knowledge and their own expertise about things. And when somebody could provide evidence that they could trust, their hesitancy was overcome. The evangelicals that we're talking about, and again, it's not all evangelicals, let's be clear with that, but the evangelicals that we are talking about are basing their concern in issues that have no factual basis. And so there's, that means that there's no, there's no evidence or there's, there's no ground on which you can uh, undo it. You can't show them alternative information because it's not based in that, right? So it's based in decades of anti-science teaching with creationism, and it's based in really deep hostility toward the government and suspicion of anything that the government does and an overestimation of their own expertise and conspiracy theories and all these kinds of things. When you look at vaccine hesitancy and an absence of confidence among men who identify as evangelical and who identify as supporters of President Trump, what is it that you take away on how they're responding So I think it's much harder to address because unlike the case with African-Americans who have historic reasons for their concern, these evangelical men, their concerns come out of this imagined conspiracy world. So they've been steeped in anti-science literature with a focus on creationism since really the 1970s. Um, they They are prone to believing in conspiracy theories. They have a demonstrated overconfidence in their own expertise. Um, they're deeply anti-government, so they're suspicious of anything that the government is doing. Um, they've been, they were stoked with this uh, anti-masking. Um, here in Jacksonville, when I go out and about, I invariably see a number of people without masks at the grocery store or with masks down below their noses, and they're almost always white men. Um, but you see this kind of broad... Uh, suspicion of everything that has given us the vaccines, given that they already think that the the coronavirus might be a hoax, and given that they think that masks don't work, and given that they think that the government might be engaged in a conspiracy to harm them, I don't see how you address that in any ways that are going to be constructive and change their minds. But I will tell you, because I spend all my time studying the sort of dark undersides of religion, uh, I am not usually the one to come up with the optimistic solution. I have friends who are very good at that, but that's not really me. I appreciate your analysis and I appreciate your honesty and your reflection. (laughs) Are you seeing in your research uh, a continuation of kind of conspiracy theories being amplified in on the various channels that you observe? Yes. And one of the important things to think about with conspiracy theories is that they are, because they're not typically grounded in anything real. Now, let's be clear. There is such a thing as a conspiracy, right? This is why we have laws against them, right? So when a group of people get together and make a plan to do something illegal, that is illegally a conspiracy. But this is something else. This is an imagined orchestration of the development of history, right? And because these things are so amorphous, 
um, they can grab bits and pieces from all over the place. People whose temperament draws them to conspiracy theories are going to be drawn to a bunch of them, not just one. You see this with QAnon, right? Because you've got all of the, so Q isn't posting anymore, but you have all of these other people, Anons, who post, and they post all kinds of different things that get sort of woven into a framework that doesn't have to be coherent and consistent. Um, we expect too much coherence and consistency, I think. So the dominant conspiracy theory out there right now clearly is QAnon. But QAnon is pulling in all kinds of other sorts of little ways of thinking conspiratorially that have been around for a really long time. Like, for example, there are a number of people who think that the vaccine changes your DNA to give you the mark of the beast, which goes back to conspiracy theories about, about uh, end times and millennialism and the rapture and the battle of Armageddon and all of that other stuff. So it, get, it got woven right in there. What is the mark of the beast for someone who is not familiar with that? Okay, okay, okay. So Christianity has long taught that there is a beginning, a trajectory, and a culmination to history, right? And they've had different interpretations of what the Bible says about that. Um, these are often based in the book of Revelation and sometimes in, in uh, other books like the book of Daniel. There is a very popular version of this that really dates only to the 19th century, and it's called premillennial dispensationalism. That's the last time I'm going to use a word like that. But that's the version that got popularized in the Left Behind books and movies that says that there is going to be this, uh, this rapture where all the Christians disappear and this battle of Armageddon and this great tribulation and then Jesus will return and establish the kingdom of God. And one of the markers of the beginnings of this period is this one world leader that takes over and forces everyone to take a mark of identifying with the kingdom of the beast as opposed to the kingdom of God. And uh, the theology is that you couldn't buy or sell without this mark. So through history, Christians who believe this end times theology have had all kinds of interpretations about what that mark was. Um, people thought it was the barcodes that they scan at the grocery store. Instead of trusting God to keep you safe, you're trusting in this tyrannical state that is dominated by the forces of Satan. And the mark of that state is this vaccine. So this is an example of how they get pulled in together. And one of the reasons I want to get people to think about culture instead of just theology is that this theology has been around for a really long time, but it was the, it was the spread of it through books like the Left Behind books. And before that, um, the late Great Planet Earth and the Frank Peretti novels and the, uh, the popularization of it through Christian music videos in the 1990s. Um, all of this subculture was infused with this anticipation of this coming persecution by the government. And the reality that you might at any moment have to uh, be willing to be a martyr in order to stand up for God over against this tyrannical state that is part of the kingdom of the beast. And that's all wrapped up in the QAnon stuff. You were describing it. It's echoing a lot of the themes that I remember encountering when 
we were working on the QAnon story and trying to understand the relationship of why the QAnon uh, conspiracy was really taking hold, particularly in evangelical churches, that it wasn't a coincidence. No, it's not. And I like to think in terms of temperament and ethos, which are much softer than ideologies and you know, so so there's a there's a there's a temperament. There's a kind of person that's drawn to this, right? It's a person that finds um, uh, one of the one of the great uh, theorists of of this kind of work is um, Michael Barkin, who wrote a book called The Culture of Conspiracies, and he has a whole chapter on stigmatized knowledge, and he talks about how, in for the most part, if if somebody makes a claim and it's largely debunked. Most of us then decide, oh, then that's not accurate, right? But there's a, there's a group of people who find that contrarian space appealing. And the idea of bra- embracing the thing that everybody else has rejected actually draws them in. <laughs> it gives them a, a feeling of having some knowledge that other people aren't smart enough to figure out. I know that you said you're not in the optimism game. <laughs> Are there voices that have surprised you? from the evangelical world that are stepping up and suggesting or encouraging their followers to to get vaccinated? Not right yet. I mean, I have been, every time I talk to someone and ask them about evangelical leaders, they point to Dr. Russell Moore. And I'm curious, how influential is Dr. Russell Moore among these evangelicals that you follow? Well, one of the problems here is that conspiratorial thinking and overestimation of your own expertise leads you to reject someone that you once thought of as an ally who ends up saying something contrary to what you believe. I mean, think about like Mike Pence, right? Mike Pence was, could, there's no one more loyal to Trump during the whole administration than Mike Pence. And one, and one time... He says, I just can't do that. It made him anathema to them. So this is what I mean about the information not being really amenable to being shown in, shown incorrect or, you know, unfalsifiable. That, because what, as soon as somebody departs from the orthodoxy, they are erased. So I think Russell Moore has been important, but I don't know that he can continue to be important if he takes the stands that confront the convictions that we're talking about. Is Dr. Russell Moore the exception to the rule? He's the exception to the rule, but to the extent that he violates the rule, he undermines the effectiveness of his voice among the people that we're talking about. It's sort of built into conspiracy theories. What is it that you see as your biggest challenge right now? That issue about knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, undermining of any shared criteria for evaluating truth. That's all for this week's show. A special thanks to our producer, Kevin McCarthy, our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. To learn more about the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit our show notes at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, learn more about us, and subscribe to the podcast so you can take us on the go. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>